Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Bill Glenn and host Rabbi Erwin Keller. Welcome. Welcome to uh, the new school of Commonweal at Ner Shalom today in Qatari. I'm Oren Slavsberg. I'm the executive director of Commonweal. And these kind of events bring both of my life together, both the Ner Shalom community and the Commonweal community. In this case, it's wonderful to have a, a dear friend, Bill, who's also been involved with Commonweal in many different ways. There's no way to really be short about Commonweal. <laughs> But Commonweal today is a collection of 35 different programs that work primarily in the areas of health and healing with a focus on cancer and integrative medicine. We have retreats both in California and um, Healing Circle, which are small peer support groups that are all over the world. I think we're in 25 different countries from Vietnam to uh, Nineveh, including a retreat center in Israel. So really Healing Circles has been bringing relief to people that are alone or living with cancer all over the world. Another third of our work is in the area of environmental health, working on the correlation between the toxins in our environment and cancer. Um, specifically, we have a project working with first responders, even in this area, measuring the level of toxins in the blood of firefighters and policemen and EMTs who have a higher prevalence of cancer about six times than people in the population because they both are wearing fire retardants which are carcinogenic, and they are also breathing in the burning houses that, with all of the plastics and the chemicals in our house. And our third area is in the area of education and the arts, and we have permacultural schools, we have summer camps for young people. This year we're premiering a summer camp for youth climate activists between the ages of 14 and 18. One of our programs is also the new school. Kira Epstein is the coordinator of the new school. I guess the other thing to remember is that the new school operates... Um, is funded by donations. So if, um, if you can help in any way, we deeply appreciate it. And with that, I'll introduce you to Rabbi Erwin Keller. Thank you, sweetie. So welcome, everybody. It's exciting to be doing this back in, back in the room. It's been, we haven't done a new school talk here at Ner Shalom since before the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic, we went to the new school, moved to Zoom, um, and uh, and left Katadi behind. And so it's nice to be back here together, and I'm excited to be here with Bill, um, who is a dear dear friend. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna share a little bit of biography, a little bit of introduction of Bill. You can blush or not, and then I know that Bill will have things to add to. Um, the biography, because no biography of Bill Glenn can be complete. A former Jesuit, Bill Glenn is a licensed psychotherapist and spiritual director with a private practice in Santa Rosa and San Francisco. Bill was executive director of Continuum, a tenderloin-based healthcare agency that provides care for triply diagnosed clients. Bill has been working with the Enneagram since 1978 and has conducted worship workshops on its application throughout the Bay Area, including um, a, a new school talk some number of years ago, an interview with, with Michael Lerner. Um, from 1995 to 2002, he was the convener, which is a way of sidestepping the word priest, of Spirit Group, an intentional prayer community, 
and for 10 years co-facilitated a program for lifers at San Quentin State Penitentiary. Bill is a trustee of the Graduate Theological Union, a co-chair of the Capital Campaign for Horizons Foundation in San Francisco, a former board member of the Insight Prison Project, past vice president of the board of KQED, past president of the Socially Responsible Mutual Fund Working Assets, and past president of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Bill is a scholar and a preacher, a teacher, a mentor, and a generous heart. In his newly published spiritual memoir, I Came Here Seeking a Person, which I saw many people walked in with and even more of you can walk out with, Bill shares the joys and traumas of growing up gay and Catholic in the 1950s and 60s, the challenge of living a life of service and ministry that is considered unsanctioned by the church, and the impact and meaning of the AIDS epidemic on those of us who lived through it in personal and professional ways. The memoir is an ode to love, joy, and faith, and to living fully amidst, as he calls it, the all of it. What would you like to add? It's pretty complete. It makes me seem really old. <laughs> oh, he did all those things. And then his demise right there at Ner Shalom. Um, I, I would just say a little bit about my family of origin. Um, I come from a very large Irish Catholic family in Omaha, Nebraska. I have eight sibs. And there are 24 glens in Omaha, Nebraska to this day that we're going to go visit and do a book event with in two weeks. But if you get off at the airport and you take the the interstate around town, you can get off at any exit and there will be a Glenn family waiting there with chocolate chip cookies, Hafner wine, and uh, entertainment. Um, so my family was crucial in my upbringing. Uh, I come from an alcoholic family. Both my parents were alcoholics. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic myself, 45 years of continuous sobriety. Um, and I am honored to know Erwin, who I have known of for about 40 years since his own really profound work in the AIDS epidemic as head of AIDS Legal Referral Panel, where we referred all of our clients to get the legal care that they crucially needed and that Erwin's uh, organization, of which he was the head, provided. And then I met his husband, uh, Oren, maybe 10 years ago uh, in a program that evolved into something at Commonweal teaching us how to look at art from a deeper place, which I found extremely valuable. And now I'm a very different museum goer because of uh, Oren's effect on me. He's had many effects on me, but that's one. And I'm <laughs> really happy to be here. Glad to have you. Um, you started by talking about your family, and there's lots to talk about. There are a lot of things I want to talk to you about, and I know other people are going to have questions, and I don't know if we're going to get to everything. Um, if I go all fangirl, we're not going to get to anything. Oh, you can go all fangirl, honey. Okay. <laughs> I'm so into that. Um, uh, but you, you started talking about your family and all of your siblings and your parents, um, and there's a lot of story there. One of the pieces that you tell in the book, right at the beginning, is about your mother's polio. And I'm wondering if it would be a reasonable way to start, if you could tell us a little bit about that and what, and what impact it had on you and the course of your life and your family's life? That's an intuitive question on your part, thank you. Uh, people my age and older in the room, I think there are some people at least my age, um, will remember the polio epidemic of the early 1950s. 
my little sister, I was four years old at the time, my sister who was two, there were five of us, and my mother was pregnant with her sixth child. My sister who was two was diagnosed with polio and hospitalized. Uh, the hospitals you may remember or you do not know were jammed with people with polio. It was like COVID in the first six months of COVID. Uh, my mother uh, caught polio, probably from my sister. Um, my sister had a, a, a mild case. My mother had a very uh, a profound case of polio. She was put in an iron lung. Uh, her baby was taken by C-section out of the lung. They cut into her, took the baby, and closed the lung. Iron lungs were these contraptions in which only the head was exposed. Um, our family split up. Uh, my sister and I were sent to live in Los Angeles with uh, people who were called my aunts, who I didn't know, but lived with for many, many months. Um, another, my dad ended up in St. Louis with cancer. I mean, it was a really a, a nightmare scenario for this young family. Um, I was invited back after my mother got out of the hospital. She survived. She was crippled for the rest of her life. Uh, profoundly crippled. She could not reach that glass. She would use her arm as a lever to get over here and go like that. And so she, she compensated, but we mainly compensated emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually to this disease. Um, it was the demarcation of our life. We would talk about family before polio, before, after polio. Um, when I got involved in the AIDS epidemic 60 years later, my mother called me and she said, you were born for this work. You know exactly what you're getting into. Uh, and at one point in the book, I called polio the epidemic one and AIDS epidemic two and COVID epidemic three. But I didn't have enough distance on COVID to really write about it. So I canned those titles. But it'd be, I really lived through two epidemics and was deeply involved in both of them. Um, it was a, a traumatic event for our family. It shaped our family. She went on to have two more children because that's what Catholics did. Um, and every time she would go to the hospital, we'd have a family meeting and they would tell us, you know, your mom may not come back. It was like so, so normative in the 1950s in, in, in Irish Catholicism, which is a, a unique little subset of Catholicism. Enough. Um, you know, the, later in the book, you talk about coming out to your parents. Uh, you talk about the cocktail hour. You talk about the... the manifesto you wrote that you, you made them sit and read. Um, and I'm, but I'm also, I, when I was reading that, I was forgetting to picture your mother the way you're describing her now. And I'm wondering about how she responded to your coming out and, and how those might have been tied together. Uh, that's also an intuitive question, Erwin. Um, I was deeply in the closet till I was 29, 30 years old. I got sober Labor Day 1978, and a month later, I went to a rally that Harvey Milk, the sainted Harvey Milk, was speaking at, and he, he gave a talk. It was a canned talk, and if you've seen the film Milk, um, th this talk is represented in the film. And he'd say, we're here today because we're not afraid, and I'm thinking, I was there in a Roman collar, looking like a young liberal friend of the gay community. I don't know who I was deceiving besides myself. I was totally deceiving myself. I came out of the closet that night. I wrote on a piece of paper, I am a gay man. I was 30 years old by a month. So I went home to tell my Irish Catholic family in Omaha, Nebraska. Remember, this is 1978, not 1999 or 2000. You were still a seminarian. I was a Jesuit, 
just about to be ordained a priest. I had spent 10 years in the order. Uh, I left in June and I would have been ordained the following November. It was very important in my family. Very important to have a son who was a Jesuit priest. Nothing was more important. So I had been in a class at the Graduate Theological Union where I now am on the board in social justice and my social justice project was myself. To treat myself from a perspective of uh, the social justice deep in Judeo-Christian theology. So I wrote this paper. I'm, I, I'm way overeducated. I, the Jesuits, they just keep you in school until you are <laughs> emaciated. <laughs> so I go home and I, uh, I told my brothers and sisters I was there for several days and I took each one out for a dinner to tell them I was gay. And they were pretty cool. They're younger than me. And I said, I want you out of the house on December 23rd. I want to tell mother and dad. Cocktail over starts at four o'clock. It always started at four o'clock since I was born. So at four o'clock, I go into the living room. They knew I was coming in. They knew the kids were banished from the house. And I said, I want you to read something. Now, the way my, my mother always held her posture like this, because her, her musculature from the waist up was destroyed. So she had good hips, a good butt, and good calves. So she as I told you, had a lover system. But so she sat there and she, I put the paper in her hands and she could read it and she could flip the pages in a rudimentary way. So they read this 12-page paper. I watched them finish reading the paper. My mother finished first and she looked at my dad wisely. So I saw my dad done and he, he was a little flush in the face. He was a uh, Reagan Republican. John Paul II was... If you remember that Pope, you have no need to remember him. But if you do, it was not a happy time. Um, my mother's first words were, I've known this since you were four. And I was so moved by that. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And she said, what if I were wrong? In the Catholic Church in Omaha, Nebraska, in a Republican? She said, I could never tell you. So my father says, and now we never have to speak about this again. And my mother looks at my dad and says, oh, Bill, his name is Bill also. This is just the beginning of a conversation that is never going to end in this family. It, that story captures my life with them. My father totally in denial about everything. My mother being the soul and the heart of the family. And I give her, I preached at her funeral many years ago, and I preached, the topic was, the polio virus as her teacher. Mm. It taught her how to be a human being. Mm. It created in her courage, humility, bravery, insight. She, she read people perfectly because people um, infantilize people who are crippled. She'd go to the mall with my sister in a wheelchair and the clerk at the Perfume counter would say to my sister, and what would your mother like? And my mother would say, excuse me, I'm crippled. I'm not an imbecile. And they'd go, oh, no. And then she continued to talk to my niece. So that, that, those lessons were profoundly affected my life and, and created in me and my siblings great empathy um, because of our deep empathy for her and her insight into who her children were. I don't know if you two ever met her, but she's, she was quite a woman. And that insight that she had that, that the AIDS epidemic was what you were here for, um, that you were made for, you were made, made for. for that moment. And we'll come back to that. There's so much to talk about. Um, wondering if you could just share for people who haven't 
read the book and don't know, uh, uh, haven't, haven't yet um, sat with pen and paper and plotted out your timeline, um, <laughs> as those of us who have read the book have done. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about, well, I want to hear about your seminary journey. I want to hear, but, but there's also something about your childhood, about faith and childhood that I'm interested in, that you talk about in the book and you and I have talked about as well about um, what, what, was your, what was your childhood spirituality like, your childhood theology? Because there was something there for you. You're just kind of getting right at it, aren't you? Or, uh... <laughs> or what was your favorite breakfast? <laughs> so my childhood spirituality was not unlike what I have evolved into as a 75-year-old man. <laughs> Of course, this is on an arc like this, of uh, complexity to simplicity again. Uh, I was a Jungian an uh, analyst when I was doing, I, I retired uh, from my psychotherapy practice, but Jung was my great teacher. And as, if you know Jung, you know he was a profoundly spiritual or cosmically oriented man. His uh, scope was enormous. It complemented my spirituality. Um, I had a primitive but very deep uh, and I'm so conscious I'm in a synagogue with Jewish friends, relationship with the person of Jesus as a boy. A profound relationship. Um, I also simultaneously knew that I had a gift, which is uh, a burden as well as a gift, that I saw people with a certain clarity as a very young person. And it drew people to me and it spooked many people when they encountered me. And that has been true my whole life. But it was related to my relationship of the person I, I call Jesus. Now, that I use the word person. That's a complicated word. It's a complicated myth. It's a complicated symbol. It's a complicated reality. But for me, it's the way I understood the divine. Um, it was powerful. It was always powerful. It was conf conflicted with my dawning awareness that I was gay, a word I didn't have yet. Uh, that I was homosexual, and I, I, I felt abandoned by the divine as I came into my uh, maturity as a gay person in high school. Uh, I prayed endlessly to be cured, and of course, as we know, the cure was not to come, but I didn't know this. Uh, and I did that through my 10 years in the Jesuits. Um, I, I could not accept this because of the religion I was raised in, which is different than my spirituality, is I think is the heart of your question. So when I came out of the closet, I decided to leave the Jesuits shortly thereafter because I really felt my work in the world was to bring all the gifts I had been given as a Jesuit and as a spiritual child into the community that received me and blessed me and held me and taught me, the queer community as we call it now. At the time, we didn't use the word queer. But... Um, that spirituality has never left me. It got really complicated because I, I had way too much education, way too much theology, way too much philosophy, and it gets etherealized, as you know, in our minds. And the more etherealized it gets, the more distant it is from our gut and our soul. Um, so the work of my adult life has really been to uh, try to restore the more primitive sense I have of the presence of the divine in the world, which I, I sense profoundly, and I sense it particularly in humankind, but also in nature, in animal life. Um, 
but it's also highly personal for me. And it's very difficult to talk about because, as you know, we do not have a language in our culture to talk about spiritual things, except in environments like this. The secular world, we've abandoned this language. So we feel, and I suspect you have similar experiences, although you are so present as a rabbi that, you know, but it's, uh, it's difficult. The other dynamic was I have always felt called to be a priest, and I left that path in order to be true to myself. My integrity required it. But I've really functioned uh, in many ways, in a priestly way in people's lives that I never expected, by and large, because of the AIDS epidemic and then everything that has flow, flowed, flown, flew, <laughs> flowed, flowed out of that. This is, this is a place where there are some parallels between our lives. Um, I, I also felt called as a child. Um, and uh, by the time I was eight, I, w I had announced I was going to be a rabbi and I was trotted out in front of all of the older relatives. You know, Erwin, tell, tell uh, Aunt Hilda what you want to be. Um, and that was all good until I, in 1982 when I decided to apply to rabbinical, uh, rabbinical school. And at the time, there was still no rabbinical school that would take openly gay applicants. And, um, and I spoke with the one openly gay rabbi in the country, called him on the phone, found his number and called him on the phone. And in the conversation, he said, well, you'll just have to be closeted in school. And, um, and you know, that ship had already sailed. Uh, in part, because the, you know, the seminary, it's since been revealed, they were doing investigations on people and they were searching out who might be closeted. Um, but also, um, as a matter of integrity, right, I couldn't do it. The idea of responding to a spiritual call totally. with, uh, 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 with uh, a pattern of, of lying, a pattern of untruth, of disintegration, um, and inauthenticity um, in order to reach some goal later. I, I, I couldn't bear the thought of it. And so I also ended up outside of it and, um, and ending up also in a ministry that was unsanctioned. It, you know, in, um, in Judaism, we talk about ordination from above and ordination from below, if we're using vertical metaphors. Um, so I, I received the ordination of this congregation Right, this congregation wanted me, but I didn't receive it from above until, you know, just a couple of years ago. But also that sense of being in an unsanctioned ministry. Um, if it were to be sanctioned now, would you do it? So I'll tell a little story about that. Uh, I've started it. I have tried to find a place to worship. I've been here several times to Ne'er Shalom, so I feel I'm an honorary member. Uh, but finding a place to worship within the traditions that make symbol sense to me has been difficult. And about a year ago, I started to go to Episcopal Church. Episcopalians are Catholics without the guilt and the shit. So, you know, <laughs> um, and I became close to the rector, who's a 40-year-old, and he happened to have, he has a doctorate from the GTU where I chair the board. So we had a natural affinity. We went out to a lunch about six months ago, and he said, have you thought of becoming a priest? And I looked at him, and I said, Stephen, do you know how old I am? He goes, I don't really care. And I said, uh, no, I get, left that path 45 years ago. And he said, well, I think you should resume the path. And I said, why do you say that? He goes, 
because you are a priest. So for this guy to say this to me, who's known me for a year, uh, and he, I said, because he was so serious, I said, I'll consider this seriously because you are such a sober man asking that. And so I'm trying to understand why at my age this has come to me. Um, I'm, so your question is prescient because I'm having lunch with him to continue this conversation next week. And it's a, it's a confounding conversation. He's um, not the first person to have said this to you. No, he's not. But he said it with a certain authority. And the fact he's a priest gave it a certain heft that I couldn't, like, if Debbie said it, I'd say, oh, Debbie, we, we'll go to coffee. But it's, it's complicated, and it's, I'm taking it seriously, and I'm 75. You tell it. So uh, I'll just say one thing about that. I'm 75. I say uh, that too much, I'm aware. No, no, please, no. Please, no, please, no. please. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to feel guilty about that, go ahead. But, but it's not a matter um, of what. No, when I was considering rabbinical school, I was 55. And I was um, sitting with our congregate and my friend Shoshana Firstman and going up and back, should I do it, should I not do it? Because so much of my identity had been as on the outside, you know, as underground. And I didn't know what it would be like to have an identity that was sanctioned in that way and what compromises I would end up making just because the role has so much baggage to it. But anyway, one thing that I said to her is, and besides, I'll be 60 by the time I'm <laughs> ordained. And she said, um, yes, but you're going to be 60 anyway. <laughs> and the, the sense of that was, God willing, you're going to be 78 or 80 or whatever age, ordination age, you're going to be that anyway. What a shame to deny the 80-year-old Bill Glenn the honor and fulfillment of being sanctioned in a church um, because it sounds funny at age 75. Did Stephen call you today? <laughs> <laughs> Feels um, like it. I'm, you know, I, I think we're going to be moving sort of asynchronously Please. today, but um, this, what you're talking about makes me think about the story you tell in the book about your friend who was dying, mm -hmm. um, who gave you the stole and gave you the charge. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to tell us a little bit about, about that. I would, and thank you. <clears throat> like many uh, of us, uh, particularly the, the gay men in the room, we, you know, we lost many, many friends. I was in my 30s when I began to, when I was president of the AIDS Foundation. We were young, running these organizations, trying to save the lives of our friends. And my two closest friends both died of AIDS um, 10 years apart, 11, 12 years apart. And the, the first friend uh, was a, a priest, a Franciscan priest. He was not a priest under normal terms. He was quite flamboyant. Uh, he preached with a Golame fan. Um, his name was Larry Tozio. Um, and he, Did he have a parish? He uh, was the celebrant for Dignity, the gay Catholic group. The first time I went to Dignity, I was scared to death to be with gay people. And I, I was dressed like I was going to... A business, I, you know, this is Sunday night and I'm in a coat and tie and I get there and all the queers are like dressed like queers are dressed on Sunday night because they've been at the tea dance all afternoon. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I go up to communion. And as you may know, that when the priest gives you communion, he, he says, body of Christ. And he said, body of Christ and welcome, handsome. And I go, 
<laughs> this, is not, this is not the church I have known. Um, we became very, very close friends. Uh, we, we directed retreats for this organization for gay Catholics for several years. Um, we became, if you, if you can receive the language, we became sisters. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Bill Glenn and host Erwin Keller. Uh, and he got sick. And I hired him. I was the dean of a Catholic high school in San Francisco for 10 years. And I hired him to come and be on our counseling team. He became the revered, beloved faculty member from all of our students and teachers. And he grew very ill. And Scott and I, my husband, we took turns, as did his friends. We had Monday night. That was the night we'd go to his house in San Francisco. We'd fix dinner. We'd pick him up out of bed. He was, he was so frail he couldn't walk. We'd put him in the kitchen, Scott would cook, and Larry and I would dish. He, was a, he loved to dish. He was just an enormously charming gossip. And he, I, he was in bed alone, and he had all this gossip. So I was going, girl, give me more. <laughs> so what would be the last night we were with him, which we didn't know uh, until the end, we picked him up after dinner, and Scott, Scott is a big guy, and he carried him back to his bed. And then as we did every Monday night, we got up on the bed and we prayed a psalm. Um, and then he would ask me to say a few words. He was the priest, recall. We would do that. And the last night, he said to Scott, and we also had our dog on the bed always, an adorable Airedale. And Larry said, Scott, would you mind taking... Uh, Phoebe and leaving the room for a minute so Billy and I can have some time alone. And I said, Scott said, of course. And he left the room. And Larry said, would you go over to that chest of drawers and go to the bottom drawer? And I said, of course. I had no idea what he was doing or what we And in that drawer were, were several stoles. And stoles are what a priest wear. These come, of course, from the Jewish tradition, as does much of Christianity, much that's good about Christianity that a priest wears when they're hearing confessions or similar work. And he said, would you get the tie-dyed stole? Larry's, all his stoles were like tie-dyed or spangled. And I said, of course. So I brought it over. He said, would you hand it to me? I said, yeah. And I got up back on the bed, and I was a lot closer to him than I am to Oren right now physically. And he said, lean over. And I did. And he put the stole around me. And he said, I want you to hear my last confession. And I said, I can't hear your last confession. I'm not a priest. And he got a little stern, and he said, excuse me, would you hear my last confession? And I was so humbled and a little ashamed, and I said, of course I will. Well, his last confession was like what a saint would say at the end, like, you know, I'm, I'm not humble enough. I don't know what he said, but it was so moving to me. So I gave him absolution, which I put my hands on his head, and uh gave him the traditional Catholic absolution that blessed him and made a cross on his forehead. And I was, we finished, and I was taking the stole. He goes, don't take the stole off. Uh-uh, you don't get to do that. You're a priest. You're a priest for this community that needs you, and you have to get over yourself and be the priest that you are. And I'm like, oh, Larry, when are you dying, honey, soon? <laughs> we didn't know it. That was the last, he died that week. We didn't know it, although we did know it, in the way that you know these things and you don't know these things. And many of us have this experience. 
Uh, I have that stole still, and I have used it sacramentally, if you will, unsanctioned. Is a very moving night in my life, and I put uh, there's a whole chapter on that experience with Larry because it's such a telling moment that I'm trying to communicate to others to receive their gifts and to stop denying them and start trusting that uh, the divine lives within us. The divine's not out there waiting for us. The divine's in us, holding us and clarifying us and teaching us and knowing us and inviting us to be the divine in the world. So Larry was one of my great teachers. I still resisted for a very long time, but it was a if you will, a come-to-Jesus moment. (laughs) (laughs) Larry ordained you. You were also ordained in dreams. (laughs) You read this a little too carefully, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I was. Yeah. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that because I'm interested in dreams and I'm interested in the uh, the prophetic dynamic of dreams that... um, knowing comes to us, not necessarily a, a call or a mission, but a certain knowing comes That's a, to us. That's a vital word. I appreciate you using it. In Hebrew scripture and in Christian scripture, dreams are really the way so much divine knowledge is transmitted to uh, us humans. Uh, and we know this from our own work in scripture, but more so we know it from our own work in life. Um, I had a triptych of dreams uh, back in the uh, 2000s. I'm still a Jesuit in most of my dreams, which is alarming and um, satisfying for me in kind of a conflicted, paradoxical way. But I have had a triptych of dreams in which uh, I was uh, ordained a priest by Jesuits. I'm, 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 I'm taking three dreams and collapsing them into just what is vital, who acknowledge that I needed to leave the brotherhood that I loved in order to be the priest I was called to be in the world. Uh, and these were stirring dreams. Um, I, I, I know them so vividly, even though it's been 20 years. Um, and they were undeniable to me. I, I couldn't deny their truth, um, which you're referencing by the word knowing to me. We're invited to know things. Um, and I feel in many ways I've known things since I was a child. Uh, as I said, it's difficult to know things. It's difficult to know people uh, in the way that I feel I do. It's, it's not something I ask for. It's, uh, it's not an egocentric uh, knowing. I'll be very clear about that. It's, um, it's just part of my path. So to receive these dreams is like, Ch-ch-ch. pay attention, little boy. Mm-hmm. Although I wasn't a little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you responded to the dream, right? And in a way, what what you then did in the years that followed was serving in the way that the Catholic Church should have been serving. Um, I don't know if that's too chutzpahdic to say. You but, cannot be too hutzpahic to me, ever. Um, but, um, I grant that you, you have that gift. But uh, the way in which when, when the structures and the leadership don't allow it, the church itself finds, or the divine finds, some way for the work to be done. But, and you were the vessel. You were the, I was a vessel. Uh, there are many. Mm-hmm. But you were a vessel. Um, not a Catholic vessel, I don't think. Don't know your whole story. No, I was not on the good ship Catholic. Um, 
during the AIDS epidemic, uh, I ran an agency that uh, took care of the, the most beleaguered people with AIDS. They were triply diagnosed, HIV disease late, mental illness, and substance abuse on the streets of the Tenderloin. I did this for many years. And all of our clients died with us. They came to us to be cared. It was like an active hospice program for the walking dying. As we know, many walked until the day they died. And we felt, I felt an obligation to treat them with the same dignity that all other human beings are treated by religion. But religion was not available. Religion really, in many ways, and there were exceptions, closed its doors to the AIDS epidemic. And the Catholic Church had exceptions also. But the Catholic Church made itself unavailable to touch these men's bodies. And I say men because they were mostly men for the first 10 years. And um, I felt called to be present to men sacramentally both during their living, but particularly at their dying. So I accompanied many men to their deaths, as many of us did, and was invited to be with them in a sacramental way, holding their bodies, blessing their bodies with oil, sacred oil, uh, hearing their last words. Um, and I, I knew it was my path. It was hard that it was unsanctioned. Uh, it, it, I, I felt inadequate without the, the, the authority vested in me by an external source, and yet... The needs of these people, children of God, were profound and so moving that the resistance I had and that we had was overcome. There were good religious people in that, uh, Jews and, and Catholics and Protestants, but Jews didn't close their doors, actually. I wrote a little note in the book about the Jewish community in San Francisco, which is very philanthropically minded and an old community. It's, you know, Jews were in San Francisco at the gold rush, Mr. Levi Strauss. Jews came to the fore. I, I, I made many Jewish friends with older Jewish women in particular because they were paying attention to what was going on in their city in a way that no one else was. And they got it um, deep within the traditions of Judaism uh, and Judaism's acknowledgement of the Anawim being to me, essential carriers of the divine. So uh, I did a lot of sacramental work. And then I started to, to marry people. People would say, we want you to marry us. I can't marry you. And they said, well, we're not getting married until you marry us. I said, then you're not getting married. <laughs> a couple came back a year later. And they said, are you ready? I said, ready for what? And they go, to marry us. I go, ooh. So I, I did a lot. Of, I've done a lot of what we call priestly work. I didn't say to myself, you're doing priestly work. I was doing this essential work that we require of each other. And ritual, as you know, Jews have taught Christians all they need to know for those who wanted to know about ritual. Ritual is essential in our lives. You come to Ner Shalom and you're dealing with ancient ritual, certainly adapted to the current moment by the Reb here, but nonetheless, ritual is vital. And gay people who are abandoned by religion when they came out of the closet throughout the world. And a part of that abandonment was abandonment without ritual. So we create rituals, but when the rituals are regarded as sacred, they have a potency that is profound. I'm kind of going on now, so please take this back. <laughs> um, no, it's beautiful. I, I love everywhere you're going with this. There's a lot to talk about, about the the AIDS years, and maybe we'll come back to that soon. I'd love to complete the story of your, of your seminary years and your 
um, and what happened at the end of that. So we're all aware of like when, you know, when the, when the epidemic began, like who you were, where you were at in your life. So I left the Jesuits shortly after I came out. Uh, I was given permission to be ordained, which surprised me. Um, and when it came time, you, have, you, you get permission from the American church, and then you have to write Rome to get per- permission from Rome in some Latin document. And I, uh, I had to have that letter in uh, on Easter Sunday of 1979. And I sat down at my typewriter on Good Friday, the Friday before Easter Sunday, coincidental to uh, Passover often. I couldn't write the letter. So I called my dad and I said, honey, I, I have to leave the Jesuits. I'm going to leave the Jesuits, not I have to. And he said, you can't. I go, you're really good with these uh, mandates. I can't. Well, I'm a 30-year-old man. And actually, I can. And I'm going to. And he goes, no, I'll pray more. I'll go to Mass more often. I go, this is not about you anymore. So I left and I uh, was principal of an inner city school in Oakland for a while. And then I went to be dean of this Catholic high school. I had met my husband in 1981, running on the running trail above Berkeley's campus. Um, we've been together since the day we met, 41 years. And uh, two months into our relationship, there was a, a national gay newspaper called The Advocate back in the day. And there was a little article in the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, a doctor in Los Angeles had seen five gay men with Kaposi's sarcoma which previously had only been recognized as a uh, cancer seen by men in the Mediterranean basin. So from Spain to Israel, back to Morocco, Kaposi's existed. And I thought it probably had something to do with the environment. Shortly, it was recognized by doctors in San Francisco, in New York, Atlanta, Chicago. And within a few months, uh, it was recognized as a disease, particular to gay men, but they also thought Haitians had it for some uh, demographic oddity that science sometimes goes to. Um, And we moved in a year after we met and our life was utterly changed by AIDS. We got very involved immediately. It was a way for me to deal with my friends getting sick. It was the only thing I knew how to do was take care of people with AIDS. And I did it at both a high level, meaning board work. I did a lot of fundraising uh, and also the, the more primitive care that we gave at Continuum. But for 15 years, I was active in the epidemic in a lead role. Um, and it affected our life as a couple. It affected our consciousness of what it meant to be gay in the world, uh, the fragility of life, the cost of homophobia to the world, let alone to the gay community. I, I, I think the world has been deeply bereft of the grace that comes with knowing gay people. And I became acutely aware of that during the AIDS epidemic when these boys in their 30s and late 30s and early 40s, I say boys affectionately, were dying. It was something we, and I know these two had that experience too, it was not fathomable. We couldn't quite deal with it. It was there, we were in constant grief. We didn't call it constant grief. It was what we were doing. It was the call. I don't even know if that's what you're going after, but this is this is beautiful. I, I there are phrases that I just had to copy out of the book when you talk about you talk about the waste and the grace of the epidemic, the waste and the grace of it. 
I'm wondering if, I think the waste piece might be obvious in terms of loss of lives it is, but also so much more that was lost beyond physical lives themselves. Um, all of the, the culture, the writing, the art, the joy that didn't enter the world. Um, that terrible, terrible waste. Um, but maybe you could say something about the grace, or maybe this is the time to read that chapter. I'm good. I, I do whatever you want. Well, it seems it might be. It might lead you to the to respond to the question. So this is. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the the AIDS chapter in this book is called AIDS Medicine and Miracles. <clears throat> it's the longest chapter in the book because it took 15 years of my life. So that you know, that's quite a few pages there. Uh, the, the last section of this chapter is a, about the death of my Larry that I told you about. It was one of my two closest friends. The other friend was named David, David Smith Fox, that some of us in the room knew and loved as well as me. Uh, this is a, a, it's a, it's not too long, maybe 12 minutes. So get comfortable. Um, and it speaks for itself. I met David Smith Fox at a supper following the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley, the GTU, their Maundy Thursday service, coincidental to Passover, at which I had been asked as a young Jesuit to preach. Later that weekend, I would make my decision not to seek ordination, and I'd leave the Society of Jesus. Some months later, David and I went on a date, one of my first. At the end of the evening, he said to me, you know, we could date for a while, Billy, and then break up, you know, like people do or we could become friends and we'd last a long time. David was prescient. Fast forward 15 years, 1992. David had been the faithful longtime companion to his partner, Bill Ken Kellen, both of whom had lived with HIV for many years. One evening in early 92, we gathered around Bill's sick bed in their apartment on 15th Street in the city. We gathered to assist Bill in his transition from life to death and whatever may lay beyond. A cradle Catholic, his Irish mother and sister had come from Philadelphia to provide their son and brother comfort. Several of us, friends of Bill's and David's, were also present in the room. Bill's sister from Philadelphia had brought blue day-glow rosaries for everyone, and David asked if I would lead the prayers. These vigils, regular but never routine, combined the holiness of the sacrament of the sick with the sometimes irreverent warmth of a gay Irish wake. Here we were, a small group of kin, family and friends, in this elegant city apartment, kneeling around the bed of a man who was too young to die. The room was bathed in candlelight. We proceeded to pray the rosary, a repetitive medieval chant for this man we loved. At David's request, I began with the ancient creed, and quickly, the quickly formed congregation responded with a string of well-remembered aves. We prayed through the five mysteries, as they're called, and mysteries they were, as was this whole saga of AIDS. After prayers and with Bill still breathing the very labored breath of the near dead, we took turns reading from the poetry of William Butler Yeats, the Irish revolutionary bard whom Bill, a self-styled rebel, loved. He took his last breath hearing the words of the poet, the candles flickering, this makeshift community of love, silently present, some softly weeping, others carefully drawing his eyelids down over his eyes, others reverently placing the sheet out of deep respect for human life over his face. Bill died steeped in David's love and the love of a beleaguered community of friends 
another of the unheralded stories of gallant love that the epidemic silently recorded. David had been the consummate caregiver. He had left his employment as an attorney in the city attorney's office in San Francisco to tend to Bill's needs. Bill was a cranky sort, fastidious and very private, but he let David, Mr. Gregarious himself, care for him for the many months it took for his spirit to leave his body. After Bill's death, David was lost. But, uh, he could not return to work. He too had HIV disease, but he was a spent man. He descended into the dark edges of the community where numbing agents and self-loathing intermingle. He withdrew, lowered his shades over his windows and stopped communicating with those of us who loved him. His caring sister Catherine and I made a pact to look in on him periodically to ensure, if nothing else, that he was still alive. He took on Bill's cantankerousness and his pension for privacy, but he forgot to claim the fastidiousness and the rebel that Bill had been. This went on for several years. David seemed lost to the living. David experienced the ravages of this cursed and blessed epidemic. With his charming and impish personality and his extraordinary caregiving self, he nonetheless could not sustain himself. The church of his youth, to which he had once aspired to be a priest, had made itself, in essence, unavailable to provide any honest spiritual succor. The community he loved, LGBT people, in the Castro was dying or tired and often increasingly finding the same numbing chemicals that David had found, no-brainer antidotes to the years of plague and bigotry and piled-up death. I was angry at David, and I missed him terribly. I felt hopeless by this point and powerless to make a difference with him or myself or anybody else. David felt dead to me. And he was not the only one. Many who had survived the poison grip of the virus succumbed to these subtler and more onerous diseases, addictions of many kinds, isolation, the durable effects of trauma, the additive nature of the accumulated grief, and the loss of hope. And like AIDS, these diseases expanded silently and multiplied exponentially in this rare seedbed of self-loathing and disregard that had always been the true epidemic in this growing queer community. These were adults convinced they were damaged goods, listening to, had convinced listening to their parents or their preachers as children, telling them that they were sick, ultimately responsible for their own Capacy's lesions. They grew convinced that their future, if at all, was murky, far away, and fundamentally and ultimately to be lived and died alone. But this even more insidious epidemic was not to claim David. His elan vital, his humility, and the grace that enveloped his life eventually won out. One day in early 2001, David emerged from these years in his darkened cocoon. He found the 12-step programs, immersed himself in their wisdom and fellowship, and became honestly and movingly light. A transformed being, a beacon, a truth teller, a bodhisattva, a force of love. Everyone who encountered him knew it, and as it says in scripture, were sore amazed. He was alive fully, finally, and forcefully. He made spirit group that some of us worshiped with for many years, a prayer group of mainly queer people and their good friends, his spiritual home. He became the emotional center of that blessed group of women and men. He was by now 50, but he was newborn 
Like Lazarus, he had come back from the precincts of the death to the land of the living. We easily regained our friendship and Cafe Floor, the social center of the Castro, found us again sitting on its ample patio, chatting, hoping, and sometimes crying. David knew everyone, so our table became a reception desk, folks stopping by, many to marvel at David's renaissance. David celebrated Thanksgiving in 2002, 18 months into his new and hard-won life with friends. We had spoken earlier that day, and we were looking forward to spending Christmas together in each other's warm company. He went home early from that Thanksgiving table, not feeling well. He called me the next morning, said he felt sick, and he was going to call his doc. His doc put him in Davies Hospital on Castro Street. He never went home. I visited him several times in the next couple of weeks. While his spirit remained light, his body was clearly failing. At one point, he took off the clotter ring that he, a true Irishman, had worn and gave it to me as a sign of our long friendship. This is an Irish friendship ring and a sign of our grace love for each other. It now resides on my right ring finger. The end was to come in a matter of days. On the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, December 13th, his sister Catherine, who had been present when we fingered our rosary beads at Bill's bedside many years earlier, called and suggested we get to the hospital. David's remaining time appeared to be short. Scott and I called some friends, and we gathered at Davies Hospital. We proceeded to his room, yet another room bathed in candlelight. We gathered around him as the combination of years of virus and other body invaders took its toll. Nonetheless, David, though now in a coma, remained a witness to something light, large, and true. Present in the room we entered were some of his siblings, Catherine, Greg, and Anita, and many nieces. Friends were there as well. This was a worn group of men and women, worn down by death, by exhaustion, and as they say in Ireland, by the all of it. At Catherine's request, I had brought some chrism, Holy oil, uh, our rituals of death had blessed. Oil used to anoint other men's bodies over the past 16 years, including that of his beloved Bill. We anointed David's body, each person thumbing the holy nard and making a blessing on his beautiful person as we each prayed for him. He breathed those last deep and labored breaths. After our anointings, we each took a few minutes alone with him to say our farewell. Taking my place at the end of the line, I wanted to postpone this for as long as possible. As others departed, I went back into his room and held this dear man in my arms and thanked him for being my friend, my longest California friendship that began when we were boys in the spring of 1978. I kissed him, cried softly, combed his thin hair with my hand, and finally bid adieu. He waited till after we had all departed Davies that evening in the manner the dying so often do to breathe his last. Some days earlier, he had asked me to help organize his funeral as he anticipated what I could not. And to deliver, to deliver the eulogy, he gave me only one instruction. Billy, tell the truth. Well, the truth is complicated and the truth is simple. The truth is that there are dark forces within and without that always need to be contended with, for they can take us down. They do their dirty work not only on our bodies, but on our souls, but they do not have the final power, and they do not have the final say. There are even deeper truths at work. The revealed truth is that there are miracles everywhere. We gathered at the glorious St. Ignatius, Ignatius Church on the campus of the University of San Francisco, 
the Jesuits having graciously given it over for his memorial service. The gathering was large, for as I mentioned, David knew everyone. True to my promise to my friend, after family members had offered tender prayers for David's soul and for us, his beloveds, for our needs, for our comfort and our solace, I approached the pulpit. I preached as David had asked, speaking of both the deep darkness he suffered and the tremendous light that once again radiated from his face, his heart, his presence. During my remarks, I noticed a woman enter the side chapel and take her place among the mourners. Immediately after the service and I left the altar, I went over to her and we embraced. With no makeup, not wearing any of her stunning red and cantaloupe-colored outfits, her head shrouded with a dark scarf, Nancy Pelosi, who like so many others had admired and loved David, had come to bury her friend. I told her how honored David would be that she was there. She said, Bill, there's nowhere else for me to be today but here with you all. I love David too. David's life and death symbolize the deepest of truths for me. Like David, we are all deserving of complicated and rich lives. Like David, we are all a reflection of the divine. But only we really only see this once we have emerged from all of our dark cocoons. Once we have stripped from ourselves all the illusions that we are anything else. My years of working in the epidemic taught me this. We are given each other, but only if we're willing to break out of the alluring prisons that keep us apart. The most complicated and simple truth is we are made for love. But to receive this terrible knowledge, for love is terrible knowledge, we are required to let go of the lie that keeps us wedded to some false and puny facsimile of our divinely wrought selves to be vulnerable enough to avail ourselves of this vivifying love. The only force that transcends every other force we know. We are given these gifts so we can give them to others. It always redounds to us. The Hindus call it karma. We might call it grace. This is the enduring truth of our lives. This work is assured and blessed and is what brings us out of the cocoons into the world, into the light we first witnessed the day we emerged from our mother's wombs. It is love that heals, love that opens us up, love releases us from our prisons, love makes us human, love connects us to one another and to that presence in the universe we know most intimately in the silence of our hearts. The sense of the divine irresistible in its draw and defiant in its demands to claim us for its own. I'll take a minute to breathe. Thank you. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Bill Glenn and host Erwin Keller. It's all good. I'm not alone in having been so moved by that chapter. Uh, I cried reading it. I cried when you read it at Many Rivers. I'm sitting here crying now. And I think about what it's like to be on this side of those years and how when good drugs came and we, we weren't burying friends every month, every week, every month, how quickly we all tried, we all, I don't know, but me, other people I know, we went back into life. We went back into trying to grab 
life as it was supposed to have been. <laughs> and living that life now for another 20 years, more, another 25 years, um, realizing how seldom I, I think back, how seldom I sit, I sit with it. I became much more aware of how much I was holding um, since this pandemic. In the early days of this pandemic, um, Oren and I had friends, neighbors, a gay couple, and, um, and one of them died, hmm. not of COVID, of something else, but it was in April of 2020. And he was at UCSF and his husband was not allowed in, right? Because it was April of 2020 and no one in the hospital could have visitors. And even though it was the rule for everyone and it was, it was uh, you know, it was for public health reasons, for actual region, reasons of contagion, what it, what it brought up in me was the memory of so many people who couldn't have their partners in their hospital rooms, people whose fam who, families of origin who had abandoned them and swooped back in and wouldn't allow partners in. All of the complexity of the pain of that time it wasn't just, it wasn't just about uh, physical disease, but about the cultural disease of homophobia and about, um, um, and about our own complicated, you, you talk about it in, in that chapter, about the way that that shame gets wrapped up in all of that so, and, until you believe you're the, you're the cause of your own Kaposi's sarcoma. The, the movement from, you know, the, the confluence of illness and shame and, and, and experiencing all of that um, in the landscape of a, of a culture and a political body that did, did its best not to care at best. Um, and in reading the book, I realized, oh, it's been 40 years, right? It's been 40 years, more than 40 years now since that first article in The Advocate. That's right. Um, 40 years last year. And, and I've been holding this question of what do we need? What do we who made it to this side of that epidemic need? Um, we're now on the, the bell curve of death by natural, natural <laughs> causes, right? And, and, I'm, uh, and I've had friends die over the past couple of years of things unrelated to HIV. Um, and I've gone to memorials filled with gay men. And, and I sit there shaking, feeling like I'm in the 1980s. So we've kind of um, we've kind of pushed this back, pushed this down for a lot of years, or a lot of us have. And I'm curious your thoughts about what what do we do about this? What do we do with this? Because that was that it has taken a lot of work to do that. It's taken a lot of work to suppress the grief, because the grief itself was so much work. I have several thoughts. Um, I went back to school to get a degree in clinical psych the year I began my work on the AIDS Foundation board. 
When I was in graduate school, the word trauma was not used once. The notion of trauma really became something psychology and psychiatry studied in the 1980s and 90s. I never heard the word shame in my work uh, uh, in school. I want to say two things I believe in, and uh, I'm speaking for all gay men, and I have no right to do that, but I'm going to say these two things. I believe it's not possible to be on the earth as a queer person without having to manage enormous shame, shame that is maybe unconscious, but that the culture has succeeded marvelously in instilling in queer youth their lack of validity to be human beings by all the ways we're shamed. Now, you may see forthright personalities up here, and we are, and we have done a lot of work in our lives, but there is a core issue of shame that AIDS, when AIDS hit, the first wave of young gay men was coming to San Francisco in the very late 70s, early 80s, and AIDS hit. It could not have found a more vulnerable community on the face of the earth, in my view, than this confluence of young gay men who had come to San Francisco to be free. Being shamed at a profound level in our culture, not everyone here is from our culture, but from our culture, is a traumatic event. And if you've studied, if you've never read Bessel van der Kolk's book on trauma, which has been on the bestseller list of the Times for four years now, it's a hard book, it will give you an education for the rest of your life. Trauma is a neurobiological event as well as a psychological, emotional, and spiritual event. And I believe the neurobiology of those of us who were involved in the epidemic for you and I both for many, many, many years. I was in my mid-30s when I started. I was in my 50s when I left. I believe the grief we experienced, and I'll tell a little story in a second, uh, we could not uh, psychologically manage. We, we had to compartmentalize it to do our work, had to, to do our work. At Continuum, we lost a client every week, 52 weeks a year. I was there seven years. So 350 clients and their pictures, we created a chapel and they were our saints. Their pictures, five by sevens, were in this chapel. Icons. It, it was an institution of grief. We didn't grieve. We tried to have as much joy. We were real, but we tried to have joy because I wasn't dying. I don't have HIV disease for mysterious reasons. We could not manage the grief. It's in us. Those of us who lived through that, there are several in the room. It's locked in. Yesterday I was doing a podcast on this book for another group, and a woman was, it was a, a Zoom, so there were people present. And I got done, and this woman raised her hand, uh, an African-American woman, maybe in her early 60s. And she started to cry. She had worked in the epidemic. And since she left her work around the year 2000, she talked to no one about it because her circle wasn't interested. And I, I read this same chat. This is a piece I read because it really embodies my own life and work on so many levels, subtler than I can get across. And this woman wept for a good 90 seconds without being able to speak because something had tapped into her accumulated grief. And what I said to her was, I'm 75. I'll be 75 this summer. I will never be able to process this grief. But what it has done is it tenderized my life profoundly as it has tenderized yours and yours and yours profoundly. Because I'm aware of the fragility of life, the preciousness of life, the demand that life 
requires of us to be true, to be true human beings. And that, that came from my experience in the epidemic among other places. But it also comes carrying around Larry and David and these men I love so deeply. I talk to Larry all the time. He's been dead 35 years this year. In 1999, I had been in the epidemic for 15 years. I, went, I go on a retreat every year to a monastery for eight days. And I've done this since 1970, so it's really part of my life. It's, not, it's so ordinary. There's nothing extraordinary about it. But I went up to this monastery in Northern California, and I found myself in the fetal position on the floor of my cell one night, sobbing. And I knew I had to leave Continuum. I knew I had to leave the epidemic's work, and I... I felt I was going to betray the gay community, which means an enormous amount. It means my life. When I left the Jesuits and came out, the gay community was there to teach me how to be a, a real human being. But I was on the floor in a fetal position. I had to pay attention to that. Whatever was going on and the sobbing, I couldn't control. And it was a release of some grief, but it's still in there. And you and I have talked about this a little bit in our friendship. Uh, it can't be processed, but it's triggered. Writing this book, I had, I've been writing for years, but when I wrote this book, what, one thing I learned was when you write like this, you are required to feel every feeling you felt at the moment of the event you're writing about, which shocked me and upset me because I, I wrote about a lot of uh, highly uh, personal things and delicate material, which we all, our lives are filled with. And I'd be sitting at my computer, my word, and I'd be crying. I'd go, girl, get a grip. You have work to do here. I would be crying. And I cannot read the Larry chapter or that chapter without, I wrote these, you'd think, really, Bill, it's your writing. It's not my writing. It's expressing something that goes beyond me. And I've had this reaction from, I've done eight of these readings now in the last two months. Everyone in the room, gay, straight, doesn't matter, holds grief. My theory as a, as a psychologist is we're angry. We have some ability to express anger or deep, we call it frustration or impatience in our culture, but it's anger. And it covers fear. So we don't want to acknowledge our fear. But I think fear covers our grief. So I think there's this hierarchy. And I think this is very true for men. Women have more access for so many reasons. But men have a certain bravado. That's an anger-based style. And it covers men's fear. Men aren't allowed to be afraid in our culture. But all of that covers the grief of being alive and not allowed fully to be ourselves. It has nothing to do with being gay. It has to do with all the cultural norms that tell us all the time, don't be alive, don't be yourself, don't trust yourself, don't trust your wisdom, don't trust your body. Don't trust, period. You get it? And we're seven and we go, I got that. And that'll last me a lifetime. Thank you. What the epidemic gave me as a grace was the invitation to feel all my feelings fully, especially my compassion, my love. I, I, you, you cannot, and you know this, you know this, you cannot be with your friends when they're dying and not allow love to explode all over their bodies indiscriminately, without any shame or embarrassment, holding men's bodies as they die, in their beds, their families in Tennessee, having dismissed them decades earlier. 
It affects everything in your life from that moment on, and those moments were legion in our lives. Um, my clients for the first 10 years of my private practice were all gay men, most of whom had HIV disease. I call it soul reclamation work, helping these men reclaim their souls, which they're told they don't have as they are dying, which is the fate that God intended for them as the culture would have them believe. So it's complicated and I'm going off again. So please mm -hmm. refocus this <laughs> quick. Um, I'm conscious of time and I, I, I know folks might have questions. So um, I'm gonna turn over the mic if there are some questions and I want to reserve a couple minutes at the end to read a piece that really moved me, really spoke to me. Of course. Terry? It's uh, one of these times when <clears throat> you know how hungry you are for good conversation when you hear it. <laughs> so thank you both. You know, one thing um, I've been thinking about the whole time listening to both of you, you both talked about uh, enduring in your spiritual path despite a lack of a sanction from your respective formal religions. And you, you particularly have used the word divine many, many times tonight. My, my uh, reading of anthropology and especially cosmology, leads, I'm an Irish Catholic too, about a long time ago. <laughs> 50 years ago I left. Um, my reading and learning and my experiences in life ask me, uh, and I want to ask you the same question, is whatever the notion of divine that you are referring to, does it have to mean re some issue from an invisible deity that means this in us, that this, as a species, this is in us? Or are you referring to it as a vision of how we should be in this world together, and that we are on this little tiny sphere. Uh, apparently right now, as we're learning, probably 90% of everything we've learned about cosmology we've learned in the last 20 years, it's one of the eras of the whole history of humans, what's going on now. Um, there may be other things out there, but we don't, we don't see them. If we're a species on this planet, how, what's the language you, you, would, you would use to describe the vision that makes people like you and maybe others of us want to do this work? If it's not for a divine connection to an invisible deity, but through just the redemption of a species that's evolving right here. I don't know if that makes sense, but thank you. Uh, it's a complicated or rather complex question. I use the word divine in lieu of the word God, which I don't use in my life because it's a word that has onerous overtones for so many of us. Uh, the word I use most intimately for myself is presence. I sense a presence. Uh, it's mysterious. Uh, I've spent many years studying theology. Theology tries to get at it. It does an inadequate job and it has to do an inadequate job. I'm a student of Teilhard de Chardin, who you undoubtedly know as a person who's interested in cosmology. I believe we, we don't know almost everything, and it's being exposed, exposed to us in these little micro dots, the Big Bang Theory, which 20 years ago, which is a profoundly wise way to try to grapple with reality. 
I don't know the answers, but I have a sense and I've had it. When I say it, my spiritual path, the, the, uh, the publisher chose the word spiritual. I would have said my I said in the manuscript, I sent my interior journey. It's an interior journey. I trust it implicitly. I'm informed by it, by Hebrew scripture and Christian scripture. Isaiah is a way for me to be on the planet. The, the instructions Isaiah gave us. Jesus is a way for me to be on the planet. But I know if I were a little boy growing up in India, I would be a very devout Hindu. Because the sense I have, that the language and the symbol set are not the most important things. It's what we are into, I believe deeply in intu human intuition. Carl Jung forced me to accept my intuition. We have profound intuitions. They lead us to all the right places, in, I believe. In my life, my intuition is infallible. That's a Catholic word that I love, infallible. <laughs> but I trust my intuition, and it has never steered me wrong when I have violated my intuition. I've been in a lot of trouble in my life. So I, I regard it as a presence. The, 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 the great uh, novelist and literary editor, Doris Grumbach, a queer woman. Now, I think, if not dead, she's about 100 and lives in Maine. She wrote a book many years ago called The, Absence, the Presence of Absence. It's a profoundly wise book. And her name for the divine was You Whose I Am. That's all she really knew. You, capital Y, capital O, capital you, whose I am. I belong to you, and I don't know anything more about you, but that I belong to you. That, to me, and I say this in the book, is the perfect description for what I'm using the word divine because I feel it has the most currency in a room of people who come from different traditions. Presence, but you, whose I am. I use the word you in my interior life, in my prayer life, in my meditation life. I... Look to Jesus to inform me how to live my life. He's, a, he's for me, an infallible guide. Is he divine? That, that way of understanding things is not very important to me. Um, and you know, we're probably the same age. You're probably several years younger. Excuse me. Ooh, Bill, 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 Bill. <laughs> You're probably a youngster who was in grade school. Brother. <laughs> um, I suspect you know, as we, the older we get, the more we know it's, it's really shrouded in mystery. We thought we knew a lot when we were 40. I thought I knew a lot. I was kind of like that till I was 60. And then 60 comes and we go, well, really, what do I know? But if we're on the path, if we're still on the path, this man's on a path. He's much younger. I know that. It's kind of pathetic. But he's true to his path. It's a mysterious path. I think you know it's mysterious. And yet look what he does here every Friday night. He imparts something about presence, the divine, you, something we know intuitively. It's articulated in Hebrew scripture, in the rituals that come out of the desert 5,000, 4,000, 3,000, 1,000 years ago. That's what I know about it. But I know it's utterly trustable. Why do I know that? I have no idea. You know, they talk about the gift of faith. I have that. I don't know if it's a gift. And I don't know why I have it. I'm one of seven siblings, eight, eight kids, four of my siblings, zero. Right. They're fascinated by, oh, Billy, you still believe? <laughs> like, how quaint? I go, it's actually not quaint. It's much more complex than quaint. And don't ever say quaint to me again. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's someone else that would like to ask a question. I'm intrigued, now that I've heard you speak about the title of your book, I'm intrigued 
I'd like, can you say more about why you chose that, that title? The, uh, the bolder part of the title, uh, Came Here Seeking a Person, that was from my greatest teacher, Thomas Merton, who was a monk uh, from 1940 until his death in 1968. Uh, he's really my great teacher. He was not a Jesuit, I might add. <laughs> um, his, he wrote voluminously, and I've read his whole view. I just, I take him in. When he was going to the monastery, and he, he was raised, uh, he wasn't a Catholic, he was raised by a, a non-believing family in France and England. He converted at St. Bonaventure University in New York, taught at Columbia, and he decided to become a Trappist monk when he was a young man. And they, he, he was kind of a, a, a raconteur. He was a very charming, cagey guy. And they said, why are you going into the monastery? And he said, oh, why are you coming? He said, I came here seeking a person, this person, this person, and this person. To me, it was a perfect way to capture life. I'm trying to know who I am. I'm trying to know who you are. And I'm trying to know who you, you are. So that was the, and I didn't have a vital story of grace. I do not like that. The publisher forced that on. And I didn't have the word gay on the, and they're, they're going, really, Bill? <laughs> So I accepted that. And I had, my title was, I came here seeking a person, notes from the interior. And they said, it sounds like a biology book. I go, it does not. They go, yeah, Bill, we're in charge of this. So the, the publisher has a lot. Once, you, once they buy the manuscript and you're so grateful, you'll grovel for them. Anything you want, anything. Well, they, they do need to find your markets, right? Well, they're, fi- they're helping me find it. They're doing their part. Yeah. Um. I'm so grateful for this time together. And I wanna, I wanna close by reading a, a piece um, from the book. And um, it's in the chapter that you wrote about the massacre at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And the experience of that sent you into an inquiry about what does it mean, what does it mean to be, to be gay? What is the spirituality of gay people in a certain way? And, and um, a lot of us who grew up gay and have active spiritual lives, we connect those things. It's, they're not, it's not, I'm gay and I have the spiritual totally. life. It comes out of that experience. You've just spoken to me about this as well, but I mean, also, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about Harry Hay, who founded the Radical Fairies, um, talking about what is the, what is the uh, productive difference, right? What is, the, what is it about gay people that, what is the particular spiritual gift that gay people might have to offer? And um, I want, so I want to read these couple paragraphs. And just so you know, uh, there's a reference to someone named Sotomayor, who was someone at the, at Pulse, who threw himself in the line of gunfire to save someone else, save his partner? His partner. Save his partner. His husband. You write, in my ruminations over these decades, asking myself and the tentatively identified divine other, why do gay people exist? Why am I gay? And what is this for? I have come to no final answers, though persistent with my questions. But I do think that in my over 44th year of being out, I sense that same-sex love is here, a thread in this human community, as an essential link 
in the membrane of consciousness undergirding the planet to assert the primacy of love in this human community. For what every and each gay person has had to traduce simply to say, I am gay or lesbian or trans or queer, what each gay person has had to traduce to find the ones whose lips they would but kiss. And for what long journey each gay person has had to travel to finally look into another's eyes and say simply, I love you. And like Mr. Sotomayor, be willing to form a human shield around another to protect her or him from life's many wounds, even its fatal ones, is testament to the absolute power of love. It's testament to the absolute assertion that a human being is at heart and at the end only ultimately a vessel for grace, for the healing of the wounds of the others. We do so to continue the work of building the community of justice and love. Any other task is but a deviation from this human project. Queer people, among others, have acquired this complicated and costly knowledge because of our lived experience in the world. Those 47 women and men in Orlando hard won this knowledge at the moment of their deaths. They gave their lives for it. And though we queer people may fail to practice it fully in our lives, God knows, it is hardwired into our psyches, mm. our souls. But this knowledge is for all of us, sexual orientation notwithstanding. And we are all called to be its missionaries. Bill, thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing your heart in these pages and in this room. We're grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you, Erwin. Thank you, everyone. There is some humor in the book, by the way. <laughs> Bill, I can tell you the pages if you want to know. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Bill Glenn and host Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.